from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? Welcome to Politics Meet Me in the Middle. I'm your host, Bill Curtis. As always, our goal here at Meet Me in the Middle is to present diverse opinions whenever possible. We want to leave you with a balanced perspective so that you can intelligently draw your own conclusions. You know, if we all make an effort to understand and respect each other, we can solve complex issues from the middle. Of course, keeping in mind that we all have goals, we have problems to solve, we're all emotional about our foot race through life, but most of all, we can lead or contribute to our community's future if we have knowledge, respect, and appreciation for one another's points. So think of this podcast as an intimate dinner conversation in your mind. It's just the four of us, and you, of course. Allow me to introduce our panel. Firstly, connecting through Zoom, our co-host, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, and worldwide lecturer, a man of many talents, Professor Ed Larson. How you doing, Ed? Nice to talk to you again. I'm doing great. Thank you. And also Zooming in, Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney who's represented U.S. interests to high-level government officials all over the world. She's also been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. She's president of our local chapter of the Democratic Club. Hey, Jane, it's nice to remotely see you, too. It's always nice to be here, Bill. And our special guest today. He's a best-selling author and lauded NYU professor, Scott Galloway. He's a wonderfully outspoken teacher of brand strategy and digital marketing at NYU's Stern School for second-year MBA students. He's widely known for two amazing podcasts, The Prof G Show and Pivot, which he co-hosts with tech journalist Kara Swisher. Also, check out his digital newsletter called No Mercy, No Malice. His rants are both entertaining and educational. Thanks for joining us today in the middle, Scott. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let's talk about higher education. The schools are all talking about opening up this fall. How do you guys feel about that? As it relates to universities, you know, your 19-year-old being at home in what was his bedroom that was converted to an office and he's antsy and you're antsy to get him out or back to Tulane or to Chapel Hill, that's a nuisance, but it's not profound. I worry that the super spreaders of phase one of the pandemic, depending on state, you had 40 to 70% of the deaths were registered in these venues of super spread, which is where these seniors, senior facilities. I wonder if this phase two is gonna involve these strident statements from university chancellors who claim that it's our national responsibility to open campuses, which is Latin for parents, please send in your tuition checks. And if we're inviting the next level of super spread, when we bring 18 to 22 year olds to small towns and massively increase the density, and then delude ourselves or enter into consensual hallucination that these 18 to 22 year olds are gonna practice the same protocols we're spending a ton of time to enforce on campus, off campus. The reason that young men and women go to college is to not distance. So I think we're tempting disaster. I think it's borderline negligent and I think it is financially driven. I think these schools are used to getting between a hundred million and a billion dollars in deposits in the next two weeks and have come up with reasons why we need to reopen. In my view, Almost every university should shut down for the fall semester and go to all online learning. Let's talk about that. What do you guys think about online learning? What are its pros and cons? Is it working? I taught a class this summer by choice, which was fully online because when I converted over in the spring, you know, I had the old model and I had to finish up the class that way. And I completely redesigned the class that taught class that I've taught for 30 years. I taught it a different way. And I think you can do it better. You can do it worse. 
Uh, if you're willing to be innovative, if you're willing to work it, that's what the students said. I kept trying to get feedback from them, and they all said that the courses they had, the flip-over courses in the spring, just sucked. But the summer, they thought, you're really trying to do it differently, and you can make it work. I think there's certain subjects that are naturally suited to teach online if you're teaching a certain sort of content that's vocationally driven, but it's not as good for the teacher, it's not as good for the student, but it's better than getting sick. Even the schools that are going online, many of them, oddly enough, are still bringing the students back to campus. Some of them, Ed, are really back to campus, but it's still going to be mostly remote education in their dorms, right? Yeah, but the problem is not really the classroom. I think Scott pointed out the problem is the socializing of these students. And if they're back on campus, they're still going to be all together in the evening. They're all going to be together in the dorms. They're going to go out to the bars together. Well, isn't the remote really more to protect the faculty than the students? Oh, I don't think so. I think you're talking about a spread among the students, most of whom won't have symptoms, but some of them will. Then when they go out to other places, they become a super spreader within the community. So I don't think it's just to protect the faculty. I think it's also to protect the community. When we interviewed the students who are going back to university, they kind of scoffed at the idea of having their dorms regulated and wearing masks in dorms, and and they just said it's all pointless and they're not going to get sick anyway, so good luck. That's exactly what I hear from them, too. So that's the point. Think of bringing 4,000 students back to Malibu. Think of Bloomington, Indiana. Think of... Uh, Missoula, Montana, Davis, California. How about sending 60,000 students into a, a Texas school? Scott, as a parent, how would you manage your college-age kid if he doesn't go to school? We're going to need a bigger boat if we're going to talk about managing <laughs> college-age children, but I think we're tempting disaster here. And to Ed's point, to take forty or 50,000 students, put them in Athens, Georgia, but what happens when the ICU in Athens, Georgia, that probably doesn't have a ton of beds, is overrun with the cashier from the bookstore, the bartender, the grocery clerk? The feature of universities is their density. In Soho, it is striking to me every September, it is an ant farm, people crawling all over each other in and around. That's the NIA. fun part. That's exactly right. That's, that's the point of college. The, the point of college is density. <laughs> And we, we aggregate or we congregate in rooms where the windows are sealed shut for temperature control. You get around a 19-year-old alcohol, and these protocols are just a sort of an exercise in futility. You know, the virus didn't get the memo around our campus protocols. It just doesn't care. This thing, I think, will spread like wildfire. You're going to have some high-profile cases of this beloved professor who came on campus week six, was dead by week nine. You're going to find a bunch of students going home. I mean, bringing people together, letting them infect each other, and then distributing them to the four corners of the country and the earth, it reads like the opening scene of Contagion 2. And it's irresponsible. And the universities that have the weakest financial position tend to be the most delusional around their plans to, to open. How many schools are going to go out of business from COVID? That's an interesting question. Because they haven't done what every other organization in America is doing right now, and that is having a sober conversation with your employees, furloughs, layoffs, cost reductions and continues to delude themselves that everything's moving back to normal and basically said, we're returning back to normal, parents sending your tuition. 
tier two universities with high international student exposure, large tuitions, low endowments, could be to education what department stores are to retail, and that is we could have a large component of our educational institution, we're talking to hundreds, maybe a, maybe a thousand universities, begin a death march to go out of business. Because these are businesses at the core that have consistently received and counted on cash flows plus 4% every year, dependably for the last 40 years, and they are just not constitutionally capable of acknowledging a financial crisis or dealing with it, and it's coming. I just could see this could fundamentally transform higher education. The Depression did this. If you go back to history, the Great Depression, that was when public schools exploded. The high quality, the Yales and Stanford's and Princeton did great in the Depression, but so did the state schools. They exploded and you left others behind. And this could be an equivalent sort of experience for higher education or even, even a more important experience. What I see in public education, and I agree with Scott's uh, assessment of it, I see that there's been a crisis building and it just hasn't quite fully exploded yet. And that is the increased cost of college education, which has most recently come to the forefront in terms of the student debt crisis. It's a situation that's unsustainable. And so the real question in my mind is, I do think there will be some dramatic effects on education between this crisis and the new technology. But to what degree is it really going to bring down the cost of education? I got to quote Scott again, because this is my favorite quote from you, Scott. And you said, let's take this opportunity to turn luxury brand universities back into places where unremarkable kids have a chance at a remarkable future. And I just love that. What did you mean by it? In 1982, uh, you know, the generosity of California taxpayers and the regents of UC, you know, allowed a really unremarkable kid who is the the son of a single immigrant mother who never made more than forty thousand dollars gave me a shot at a remarkable education undergrad at UCLA, and then a remarkable graduate education at Berkeley for a grand total of seven thousand dollars. And uh, when I applied to UCLA, it was free or effectively free, and they let in 40% of the applicants. Now it is not free, it's very expensive, and they let in somewhere between eight and 12% of the applicants. And so the question I think we have to face as a society is, do, do we wanna double down on the remarkable? Do we wanna double down, as we've been doing the last 40 years, on the top 1% and not make them millionaires, but make them worth 30, 50, 100 million? Or do we want to do what we did in the 80s? And I think it's probably all of us have benefited from, and that is take kids who are good, but maybe not remarkable, and through the greatest upward lubricant in the history of Western society, affordable public land-grant education, give them remarkable opportunities and remarkable futures. So I, I think we just have a bigger decision here. Do we want to continue as academics, and I'm guilty of this, to be drunk on luxury? We brag that our admissions rates are down to 10%. That's tantamount to the head of a housing shelter bragging they turned away nine in 10 people last night. Or do we want to return to a society that says, maybe you're good, but we see, we see the remarkable in you. And we have this remarkable thing called public affordable universities that are going to give you a chance to be remarkable. So where does the money come from? I think we have to enter into a grand bargain. I think it has to be a collective effort among citizens who vote for officials who are willing to increase funding again, but at the same time, universities have to hold themselves accountable and dramatically decrease the costs per student by leveraging small and big tech and having some very painful conversations with administrators, 
and faculty who have not been subject to the same economic hardship and demands as every other person in every other sector. I'm also a beneficiary of, of how cheap my college and my law school and my grad school were. And if we can get back into that situation, we can instead start lifting the boats because now the price of education is just out of the reach of maybe 60, maybe 70% of the people. They don't even think it's a realistic possibility, but you can change the trajectory of schools of these great state schools and some of the elite privates. So they let more people in because they have a bigger cushion because now they're doing a mix of online. And we're finding out with faculty teaching online this year, we're learning what we can do online. You put that mix in, you have a chance to finally start bending the curve in the right way, just as beginning say in the 1980s, we've been progressively bending it in the wrong way. Going back to providing free or low-cost college education at state universities for in-state students is neither such a radical idea nor is it impossible. When we were all young, if you were an in-state student at a state university, tuition was very low. In fact, when I was very young, before college age, it was almost free. We're not going to be able to stay competitive in this post-industrialized world unless we really seriously develop our talent. Every other major industrial country does, and they don't ask their kids to go into $100,000 of debt and up to do it. And not to mention the fact uh, investing in our population, investing in the education of our population also solves other social problems. So then, Scott, do you think that online learning is really the future after COVID? We're going to just have more of it, just as retail went to 18% online commerce, and now it's at 28%. It's jumped 10% in the last in the last three months, we're going to see a quarter, a third, a half of learning go to online as a means of cost reduction and in some cases, superior delivery. Walk into a retail store, walk into an emergency room and compare it to 40 years ago, it looks a lot different. Walk into a university classroom, a lot of them don't look and smell that different than 40 years ago, except the fact that they don't charge 80 bucks per class, which is what I was charged at UCLA. And here's a stat. I'm teaching 400 kids all online this this fall, because I'm not returning until campus until they have a vaccine. My class has 400 registrants. They're each paying $7,000. That's $2.8 million for 12 Zoom classes, or approximately $240,000 a night for me to be on Zoom for two hours and 40 minutes. That is outrageous, and it needs to stop. Are they making massive profits? And if they are making massive profits, where do they go? I put some of the blame on guaranteed student loans. I think you can see a direct relationship with the skyrocketing cost of education with this assurance of guaranteed student loans of all these students were thrown money. And then, of course, these students who get all these loans, these loans aren't even forgivable in bankruptcy, and they're hobbled with these loans for the rest of their life. I actually benefited from the guaranteed student loans, but that is right. When you have the student loan program, you've got a subsidized system in an intensely market economy. And so the schools recognized when they came into play that they weren't limited anymore in charging what the parents could pay or the students could pay. They had that plus what they could borrow. Problem is, I don't think the answer is to get rid of the student loans. You guys aren't answering my question. Are the presidents of colleges getting listed in the Forbes 400? Where's all the money going? It's people. The compensation and benefits. We have 190 faculty at NYU Stern. We could run the place with 60. I mean, that's, that's the harsh reality. Everyone would have to work harder. Everyone would have to be more accountable. 
just, but that is what has happened to every industry except ours. It's not how much individual faculty in the humanities are being paid, it's the numbers of them. That the number of faculty you have went up quite a bit, but also the number of administrators went up. Then my Stern, we have leadership and ethics departments. And I can't get my nine-year-old to eat his breakfast, but I'm gonna teach a 28-year-old how to be more ethical. And these individuals, these departments cost millions. They cost millions. There's no measurable outcomes. In my viewpoint, there's no, there's no accountability. And once you introduce a cost to a university, it's the most stubborn barnacle in the world. It is never going anywhere. We're gonna leave that right there and take 30 seconds to pay for the show. We'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. So what you gonna do about it? Welcome back. We're with Scott Galloway, Jane Albrecht, and Ed Larson. Scott, a little while ago, you suggested that we were going to need post-COVID a lot more online learning so that we can get more people the opportunity to have serious quality education. But then again, 74% of students are dissatisfied with online classes. So good luck in getting parents and students excited about paying tuition for them. Pursuing intellectual curiosity falling in love, getting your heart broken, developing resilience, spilling into adulthood in a safe, joyous campus environment, that's absolutely magic. And I would hate to believe that that would just be become the domain of the children of rich kids. What has been laid bare naked is that, I don't even think it's the Zoom classes that are that bad, Bill. I think what's, what's really um, eye-opening is parents are listening in on these Zoom classes and going, that's what I'm paying $58,000 a year for? So <laughs> there's been a recognition that this, this pricing has just gotten so far ahead of what it's worth because there's this general dictum in the U.S. that you have, to, that you have failed as a parent unless you let your kids into school. Okay, they didn't get into a tier one. They got into a tier two through cartel pricing. There are universities out there that are offering you a Hyundai and charging you the same price as a Mercedes because somehow we've convinced everybody you have to have a car or you have failed as a parent. So even if they don't get the Mercedes, if, as long as they get a Hyundai, you buy the Hyundai for the same price as the Mercedes. It's, but it's, you need the Mercedes on your resume. Well, it helps. It sets you into a different weight class in terms of your economic opportunities moving forward. And that goes back to a notion of a caste system. But when you talk about the amount of debt on young people now, it's just so unhealthy for our economy. They form households later, they get married later, they're less inclined to start a business. Just the amount of sheer stress it creates across households. We like to think of university administrators and, and faculty as being nice people who sit around with their Labrador and watch PBS and we're incredibly noble people. We're the same as anyone else. We will come up with rationalizations for why we deserve to earn more money and have better health care and have less accountability. It's just really nice to have fewer responsibilities and more money. And if the marketplace will afford that, you will take advantage of it and you will invent reasons why it makes sense. And we have been doing that for four decades. This education has stuck out. It's the mother of all chins and the fist of COVID are coming for it. And it couldn't happen to a nicer group of people. 
We've spent something like $6 trillion trying to make it a little easier to get through two or three months of COVID. Why can't we spend $1.5 trillion to eliminate the college debt? I don't think that's a good idea. I think that, that we allocate some of that capital back to public grant, public universities, but not until those universities get in fighting shape and say, we are going to dramatically lower the cost per student and dramatically expand um, our enrollments. Every conversation I have with universities, they pretend that they're interested in my thoughts, they bring me in, and they basically go through a lot, they do a lot of nodding, and then they ask for me for money. And I'm like, that's not the point. Until you start delivering education at a much lower cost, I don't think you should be raising money. As a matter of fact, I just think we're feeding the crack addict at this point. I think these universities, I think this, every business is going to come out of COVID leaner and meaner. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're reshaping around a new economy. They're making difficult decisions. They're tightening their belt. And instead at universities, they're in consensual hallucination with each other that we're returning to campus in the fall and charging the same tuition. It is, it is just, it's delusional verging on, in my opinion, on reckless. Scott, I, I think you're right that this will put tremendous pressure on, but even assuming most universities close for the fall semester, I think it's entirely likely that by January, most of them will open. Yep. And, and is one semester of this kind of pain going to really bring that kind of change? I think there's an opportunity if we embrace it around experimenting with great online learning to dramatically increase the online competence and potentially increase enrollments across our better universities. I mean, there's just so many great, great public school systems that the society would greatly benefit from if they could efficiently expand their enrollments. But I think that one semester of substantially impaired revenues could put 500 to 1,000 universities out of business. University of San Francisco has a 60% admit rate, a negligible endowment, a ton of international students that aren't going to show up, which are our cash cows. 19% of NYU students are international, but it's probably 40% of our cash flow. And when you have those xenophobic tropes from coming out of the White House, at some point they decide I don't need this shit anymore. You could have hundreds of universities, small, high tuition, liberal arts, experiential universities that don't have the brand. Uh, you could see them almost out of business by October because they just don't have anything to fall back on. Are there any Ivy League schools that, have, uh, that are at risk? No, they're bulletproof. They have huge endowments. They have endowments somewhere between the size of the GDP of El Salvador and Norway. They're double down on their exclusivity. They just have to go into their waiting lists. They're more spectacle than historic. I mean, the entire Ivy League educates 64,000 students. I don't want to say it's irrelevant because we talk a lot about well, it. Well, you've, you've accused them of being a finishing school for rich kids. No, I think it's worse than that. I think they're, they offer classes to the children of their investors. Uh, I think they're drunk on exclusivity and have lost the script around what it means to be a public servant. But they're, they're fine. They'll double down on their exclusivity. They have incredible brands. People talk about Apple being the best brand in the world. What's well, not? MIT is the best brand in the world. Harvard, Stanford are the best brands in the world. No one spends $100 million to put their name on the side of a building on the Apple campus. These are the strongest brands in the world. They've gone centuries. They're global they'll be fine. So will the big state universities. They're going to be fine too. But, you know, USD, there are so many schools that charge tier one prices, don't have big endowments, and their cost structures are inflexible. And when you go from two, $300 million a year in cash flow to 80 overnight, you're in financial crisis. And we're going to see that in September. The public, the government, universities, administrators, 
we all have to hold hands and cross the Rubicon here and say, the goal is more good kids given remarkable opportunities through a dramatic expansion in the number of freshman seats at a much lower cost. Do you have some advice for students and parents as we go through this process where their actions could in fact take this opportunity to make higher education a better place in the future? Well, I think a lot of it just comes down to citizenship. I mean, who you vote for, making sure that funding is a priority, putting pressure on the universities as an alumni to expand enrollment. You know, it's very easy to get caught up in this. I don't know how many of you say with pride, jokingly, I could never get into the school I got into now. We say that all the time. And we say it as a point of pride, but it's not. It's a point of tragedy, because that means kids like you are not going to get into that school. The real point of pride should be, it's much easier to get into my school now than it was when I applied. That is where we need to be. And we're not there. We've gone the opposite way, because we all love the idea of having our credentials go up in value and being able to brag about our university, so we take pride in the exclusivity once we've gotten our our passport stamped to a better life. So as citizens vote in administrator, vote in elected officials who are willing to stop the defunding of government, hold our universities more accountable to dramatically expand their enrollments. Um, I get a lot of questions from parents and kids about whether or not they should return to campus. I'm telling them to demand more financial aid or to taking a gap year. I think they should start acting more like consumers. Look, I don't think there's a silver bullet here. We've got to attack this from all angles. I would really stress the role of state universities in all this, whether it be community colleges, state colleges, or state universities like the Michigans or Virginias of this world. If they take advantage of the online opportunity, if they cut their tuition costs, some of them still keep it pretty low, but others have raised it up. If If they make themselves once again open to more middle class, greater variety of people. Um, They can use this as a leverage opportunity like they've had twice before. During the Great Depression and then again after World War II, the state universities really stepped forward. And that's where you saw the Michigans or the, the UCs really change. And they were an instrument for American greatness and they could be it again. The land grant universities and the state universities had this opportunity and if they grow themselves larger, look back, Cal helped drive Stanford's quality. I think if the state universities play that role again, they will help drive quality at other schools and we can revive the American education system through lower cost and a broader opportunity for good students to get into good schools and get a good education. Here, here. We're only a couple weeks away from when most universities would start their fall semester. Yet I only have heard a handful who said we're going totally online. Isn't it getting sort of late in the game for them to change their mind? Most of these schools are actually offering most of their classes 
online. They're just trying to get their students to come back because they have all these dorms they need to fill because they're deep in debt to, with bonds and they need to fill those dorms. But actually the classes themselves at most of these schools, even if they have the students back in the dorms, most of the classes are actually online. It's just a scattering of classes, a fraction of the classes that will actually be live. And I agree with Scott, you got to dangle that out there. But as it get closer, more and more will be online. We are begging disaster here. What happens when you send 30 or 40,000 asymptomatic carriers to Athens, Georgia, and then in week three, a bunch of people, older people who work in the campus community, and some of these communities are basically the campus and then the people servicing them. What happens when the cashier, the nurse, the library attendant in their 50s, 60s, and 70s hit an ICU that has a total of a dozen beds. This sounds cynical and depressing, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. I think if we continue to think that the virus has received a memo around our optimism and our need to get back to some sense of normalcy, I don't think the virus gives a good damn what we have planned. Most universities are opening, right? Most are. I think we are inviting disaster. I mean, it's just insane. And the whole point of this pandemic, the only thing we know that works is to keep asymptomatic carriers away from each other. And the university system is a function of one thing. It's a function of density, which is our enemy here. We are inviting disaster. And I think if we don't change our protocols really fast, we're gonna end up sending these kids home after some very, very ugly things start to happen in these small college towns. You know, Scott, this has been really spectacular, and I really appreciate you coming on, and I, I hope you'll come back. In the meantime, how can people find you? Uh, thanks. That's a generous question. So my Friday blog that you referenced, No Mercy, No Malice, comes out every Friday. Uh, I teach courses online called the Prof G Sprints, and I also um, host two podcasts, The Prof G Show and Pivot with my co-host, Kara Swisher. But thanks for having me on, and I, I always have time for Raging Moderates. Okay, and Ed Larson, Jane Ulbricht, thank you so much for coming into this conversation. It's going to be an interesting fall, and I think we're going to be learning a few lessons. Have a good day, everybody. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating, and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.